What a great song. I've never heard that song before, but I'll take that song often. Grace, um, I, I like to say that grace is always bigger. So whatever you're facing this morning, that is a tremendous message in that song. I would look for that altar of, of grace. I have a confession to make, and that confession is that usually around Thanksgiving, I am going to turn at some point in our church ministries to Psalm 103. Uh, that sometime is this morning. So if you'd like to find in your Bible the 103rd Psalm, that's going to be our focus this morning, and not the whole Psalm because it's a, uh, because it's, uh, a rich Psalm. We're only going to take the time to look at the middle of the Psalm. I love the 103rd Psalm um, and its, uh, its focus. I don't know if there's another chapter in the Bible that so clearly reveals God's compassion for his people. It is a wonderful psalm to turn to any time of the year, but especially at Thanksgiving, uh, because it gives us a platform from which we can begin our thankfulness to God. I've entitled this message this morning, Thankful for God. If your family's like mine, we, we sit around before we have Thanksgiving uh, dinner and we discuss those things that we are thankful for. And sometimes we, we are more thankful for the gift than we are the giver. And so this morning, my hope is to just point you to uh, being grateful for God in six or seven different areas. Um, this after or, or this morning, rather, I know there's more reasons to be thankful for God than we have time for in the hour we have together. But I've I've chosen verses six through eighteen here in the hundred and third Psalm to pull out seven seven reasons um, revealing why we can be thankful for God, things that He has done for us, and things that He has yet to do for His for His people. Um, how long is this chapter? Let's do this this morning. We haven't done a responsive reading in a long time. Can we do that? You have your Bible open, and um, let's do this too. Why don't we stand together? I'm going to read verse number one, then you read verse two. I'll read verse three, and let's make our way through these 22 verses together going back and forth, all right? Psalm 103, I'll begin with verse one, and then you follow. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Who forgiveth all thine iniquities, who healeth all thy diseases. Who satisfieth thy mouth with good things, so that thy youth is renewed like the eagles. He made known his ways unto Moses, his acts unto the children of Israel. He will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far as the east is from the 
Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto children's children. The Lord hath prepared his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom ruleth over all. Bless ye the Lord, all ye his hosts, ye ministers of his that do his pleasure. Lord, it must be pleasing to you. I would hope it is to hear your people reading your word to you in worship. Thank you for what we've just read. And there are many reasons in here that our souls ought to bless you. And we pray that today as we look into your word, your Holy Spirit would help us to bless you. I pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. And thank you for participating in that reading this morning. Seven reasons from Psalm 103 why we should be thankful for God. Let's just make our way right through them. The first one we find in verse number 6 and you are in this classification, the Lord loves to help the needy. It says, in fact, you read verse number 6, the Lord executeth righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed. Boy, you can change one word in that verse, and it changes the whole thing, doesn't it? If you take that word for out and put in the word on, it completely changes what just happened there. But that word says, or that verse rather, says that he executes righteousness and judgment on the behalf of those who are oppressed. The best way to think of that word oppressed is to, is to think of one who can't help themselves. They can't help themselves. Specifically in scripture, it generally refers to widows and orphans and the poor. And in the Old Testament, the strangers or the, uh, the non-Israelites who lived in the nation of Israel, the foreigners. God helps the oppressed, it says. When you're tempted, and, and in America sometimes we do this, um, probably everywhere, but in America sometimes we, we might start thinking of ourselves better than other people. We need to be careful, especially if you have some authority to you, be careful not to take advantage of others because of the position that you're in, to the point where that gets abused. The reason I say we should be careful to do that is because God says, you need to think about that before you do that, because I'm going to take up for them. He takes up for those who cannot help themselves. We are, we are a lot like God if we'll help those who cannot help themselves. The Lord says here that he takes up for those who are oppressed. He keeps his eye on helpless people. And when, when people move against the helpless, keep this in mind. This is what verse 6 is saying. When people move against the helpless, 
God will step in to equal out that balance. God steps in on their behalf. It says that he will execute righteousness and judgment on behalf of them. There may be, hard, there, there may be times when it's hard to believe that God is acting on behalf of those who are oppressed. When we see acts of terror or heinous acts of crime committed against helpless people, we might question this truth. But I want you to know this truth stands solid and true because it's in the word of God. It certainly stands true on our behalf. You need to think of history. We need to think of human history, what it has happened and what yet happened. Think of it like a book. We just haven't come to the end of the book yet. But ultimately, the scales will be balanced and judgment's going to be made. God will judge with impartiality. He's not going to take, uh, he, he's not going to uh, favor one over the other. He's going to judge without excuse making. He's going to accept no bribes. He's going to make perfect righteousness and judgment for all that are oppressed, the needy. That's you and that's me. We are needy people. We don't like to admit it, but we absolutely are. We're needy. As God's people, we are needy people. He's on our side. You say, Pastor, there's sometimes I don't feel like God's on my side. He is. The first thing I want you to see in verse 6 is that God loves to help the needy. If you're needy, call out to him. Call out to him. He loves to do this. He will do it. The second thing is this. In verse number 8, he shows mercy to the undeserving. That's you and that's me too. Verse number 8 in Psalm 103 says, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and plenteous in mercy. That is a a rich, full verse. There are four attributes of God in this verse. Let's just go through those quickly, and then we'll just make some observations before we move on. The first thing that we learn in that verse is the Lord is compassionate. It says the Lord is compassionate. Merciful. That word merciful literally means full of compassion. You need to think about a parent's love for a child. Think about the, uh, how you felt when you first saw your son or daughter. That's how God feels toward his children. He is full of mercy, full of compassion, it says. I like what, and this is really, it's talking about this word compassion. It's really talking about the love of God toward you. F.B. Meyer said, uh, I told you before, I wish I was more poetic or able to embellish. So I just have to quote people who are, who can draw the word pictures. F.B. Meyer said this, the love of God toward you is like the Amazon River flowing in order to water one daisy. That's the love of God toward you. First, the Lord is compassionate. We're still in verse 8. The Lord is compassionate. Then the Lord is gracious. It says the Lord is merciful and gracious. He gives us what we don't deserve. Those that he saves are saved completely. Those that he forgives are forgiven fully. Those that he sets free are free forever. That's how gracious God is. I don't deserve any of that. And yet God gave that to me. The Lord is compassionate. The Lord is gracious. Verse number 8 says that he is slow to anger. I wish I was more like that. He is so patient with me. He's patient with you. 
He's patient when his children fail and when his children fall. He is slow to anger. That's another good example that God demonstrates that we ought to follow. Then it says at the end of verse number 8, he is plenteous in mercy. That means he abounds in kindness. He abounds in kindness. He grants more than we can imagine. Here's Charles Haddon Spurgeon on that phrase, plenteous in mercy. If you don't have Spurgeon's works on the Psalms, you should get it. It's a three-volume set entitled The Treasury of David, and I think it's the greatest commentary ever written on the book of Psalms. You ought to have it for your personal devotions. One of my sisters uh, started uh, one year. She start, I think she started in January, and she went through the entire book of Psalms with Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Now, it's more than just reading a chapter a day. In fact, you won't make it in a chapter a day. Spurgeon looked at that little phrase, plenteous in mercy, and out of that phrase, he came up with six aspects of God's mercy. That is genius. I don't know how you could look at that, but he just started thinking about what does it mean to be plenteous in mercy, just full of and overflowing with mercy. And this is what Spurgeon said. All of the world tastes of his sparing mercy. Those who hear the gospel and partake, they partake of his inviting mercy. The saints live in his saving mercy. They are preserved by his upholding mercy. They are cheered by his consoling mercy and will enter heaven through his infinite and everlasting mercy. He is plenteous in mercy. God shows mercy to the undeserving. I've never been deep sea fishing, but I've been told there's no fishing to compare with that. I have never eaten at a king's table, so I can only imagine how he eats compared to how we eat. But I can tell you by experience that there's no love and no mercy like what God will extend to you. God is, God is the one who loves to help the needy. He shows mercy to the undeserving. The third thing God does is he tempers his wrath. We ought not to neglect or forget about ever the wrath of God because it's there. It is as real and as active as his love. But he tempers it. Thank the Lord he tempers it. Verse 9 and 10, he will not always chide, neither will he keep his anger forever. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. He tempers his wrath. We all know people, please don't let this be me, we all know people who love to keep a quarrel going because they're angry, but God isn't like that. He is willing to end the quarrel and welcome us back home. I wrote down six things here that make some practical implications for tempering God tempering his wrath. We ought to keep this in mind. The first one is this. God is more ready to forgive than we are to be forgiven. God is more ready to forgive than we are to be forgiven. Second, when we forget to pray, he'll feed us anyway. When we forget to give thanks, he'll still give us restful sleep. 
when we refuse to give, he keeps on giving still. When we fall, he lifts us up. When we fail, he still calls us his children. This is a God who tempers his wrath. There's another way God tempers his wrath. He blesses, have you ever thought about this? Dr. Dr. Manley mentioned atheists this morning in our Bible study. Consider this, that God blesses those who don't even believe in him. There was an, an atheist, he died a while back. His name's Christopher Hitchens. I think he was British, Christopher Hitchens. He wrote a book entitled, God is Not Great, How Religion Poisons Everything. He was, he was a very intelligent, creative, talented, but foolish man. Because he said there is no God. And the scripture says twice, it's the fool that says in his heart there is no God. Christopher Hitchens died a fool. He died fully committed to debunking all that religion and any, any concept of God purports on mankind. He did all that during his 62-year life while breathing the air God gave him and walking on the planet that God created. God tempers his wrath in that even a man like Christopher Hitchens who spent his entire adult life trying to convince the world that belief in God was foolish and that religion, by his words, poisons everything. He did that for 62 years only because God tempers his wrath. Why would God show kindness to a person who has dedicated their life to denying him? It's because God's not, he is not intimidated at all by a fool. And he's a gracious God. We already said that. He's full of mercy. And he's slow to wrath. That God who is slow to wrath withholds punishment to his, to his enemies. And even that is an, it's an evidence of the mercy of God. Romans 2, 4 says that God does that so that the goodness of God will lead people to repentance. Christopher Hitchens believes in God today. It's just unfortunate that he does it while spending eternity in hell. God tempers his wrath, but he doesn't do away with it. There will come a time when God will, he will exercise his wrath. So the next one, number four. Not only does he do all of these things, reasons we should be thankful to God. Here's a good one. Verses 11 and 12, he forgives all our sins. I love verses 11 and 12, don't you? Here's another one of those Wonderfully picturesque, poetic things. It says in verse 11, For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. Dr. Rogers, uh, Dr. Adrian Rogers says that God had much rather forgive than to judge. He will judge. He'd rather forgive. There's a couple of things I'd like you to to consider here in God's love. The Bible says that God so loved the world that he gave his son. It's his love that led him to work out a plan to forgive our sins. So two aspects of God's love. The first thing is I'd like you to consider the vastness of it. The vastness of it. It says that for as as the heaven is high 
above the earth. There's a guy named James Ashworth, and last year, last April, uh, April 7th, 2022, he published an article called Science. This is this sounds like some, some title I would come up with, my creativity. But this is the title of his article. Scientists find the most distant object ever seen from Earth. That's You pretty much now have the whole story, don't you? Scientists find the most distant object ever seen from Earth. This object has been called by people smarter than us, HD1. It's an object that is approximately 13.3 billion light years from Earth. Can we just go back to science class for a minute and remember that one light year is the speed that light will travel in a year while traveling 186,000 miles per second. 186,000 miles per second. This HD1 is now the far, it's the farthest object we've identified from Earth, 13.3 billion light years. So light from that object would take 13.3 billion light years to get here. So what, how does that translate to miles? Well, let's talk about our sun. It takes the light from our sun eight minutes to get to Earth. The light that you're enjoying right now came from the sun eight minutes ago, 93 million miles away. It traveled 93 million miles in eight minutes. This HD1 is 13 point, theoretically, I don't know how to calculate that. I don't know how they calculate it, but they did. 13.3 billion light years. Those that, that number, whatever 13.3 billion light years translates to in miles, that leads us to two inescapable truths. The first one is that we are less than a speck in a tiny corner of a massively large universe. So let's not get too impressed with ourselves. The second thing is the vastness of this universe is beyond our comprehension. You might be the smartest person in this room, but there's no way you can comprehend 13.3 billion light years. That, that's insane. That, that is an incredible distance. And yet the scripture says that God's love is greater, deeper, and broader than the heavens are above the earth. That's verse number 11. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. As vast as our universe is, it's not big enough to describe, define, or illustrate the love of God for you and for me. The second thing is not just the vastness of God's love, but consider the breadth of it. First, it talks about the vastness, and it compares God's love. It says, higher than the heavens above the earth. Then it says, as far as east is from west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. So far as east is from the west. Now, here's a dumb little illustration. You want to travel around the world from little Jefferson City, Tennessee. So you get that, I don't know, that guy over in Newmarket or Dandridge, wherever he's from, he has a hot air balloon. And you get him take you up in that hot air balloon. Good luck if you do that. You couldn't pay me to go up one of those things. It flies across church all the time. And I'm thinking to myself, what are your solutions for mechanical problems up there? There aren't any. 
But let's say you want to go around the world and you start here in Jefferson City and your plan is to go around the world. So you get that guy over here in Newmarket or wherever he's from and you take his hot air balloon and you get a good tailwind and you end up in Raleigh, North Carolina. And that's about all you can handle of that. So you go from Raleigh, North Carolina, you take a plane to Reagan International Airport up in D.C. and you refuel there and then you head across the Atlantic Ocean, you land in Portugal, uh, in the capital city of Portugal, Lisbon. Now you've been in a hot air balloon and you've been in a, a, a plane, so now you rent a car and you drive across Europe. And you drive all the way across Europe and through Ukraine, you enter Asia by way of Russia. And then when you get in Russia, you keep going east, but now you're going more southeast and you're driving through all those countries over there that end with stand. You know all those stand countries? Uzbekistan, Pakistan. You drive through all of those countries over there and you drive over the incredible mountains that are, Nepal, that are in Nepal. Crazy, beautiful mountains over there. And you just keep driving. You finally come to Bangladesh. When you come to Bangladesh, you're tired of driving, so you get on another plane and you fly to the Philippines. And then you fly, when you leave the Philippines, you land in Honolulu for refueling. And because you've never been there before, you decide to go to uh, Cabo San Lucas, the very southern tip of Mexico's western peninsula. And now you're ready to get home. You've been all over the world. You're ready to get home. So from Cabo San Lucas, you take the three or four hour flight to Dallas, Texas. And then you get in another plane in Dallas, Texas. You get in one of those little American Eagle planes and you take the trip from Dallas to Knoxville. Your family picks you up at McGee Tyson Airport and they drive you back. And finally, exhausted, but now a world traveler, you arrive back in Jefferson City. And you did that while never going west. And no matter how far east you went, you couldn't find west. That's exactly God's point in verse number 12. You can go looking for west by traveling east all you want. You'll never get there and you will never find your sins again because that's how far God has removed them from you. He has forgiven us of all our sins. That's the breadth of God's love. When God forgives, he removes our sins, lifts them up, takes them away, and puts them so far away from us that we will never find them again. They are gone forever as far as the east is from the west. I am so thankful for that. I don't know who said it. Anonymous said, God has a long fuse. Verse number 8 says he's slow to anger. God has a short memory. Verse 9 says, neither will he keep his anger forever. God has thick skin. Verse 10 says, he's not dealt with us after our sins. And God has a great heart. Verses 11 and 12, so great is his mercy and so far hath he removed our transgressions. I'm thankful for a God like that. It's a God who helps the needy. He shows mercy to the undeserving. He tempers his wrath. He forgives our sins. He understands our weakness. In verse number 13. Like as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. We've made this observation before, but it's important to reiterate because there's just a false concept through the whole world. Not everybody is God's child. 
The human race are not all the children of God. The human race is the creation of God. We're all his creation. We're not all his children. We have to be born into that family. And so verse 13 is not for every person in the world. Verse 13 is for God's children, those who have accepted Jesus Christ as his Savior. And God God pities them, it says. Not the way you or I pity somebody. Now, this is a this is a flimsy thing, but you might have felt pity on Vanderbilt yesterday. I didn't. Not in the least. But you might have. If you're not a diehard New World Tennessee fan, you might have felt pity for them. That's not the pity here. The pity, the, the word pity in verse number 13 is talking about that great, deep, unshakable care that a father has for his children when he realizes how dependent they are on him. That's what it's talking about. When Jesus said in John chapter 15, without me you can do nothing, he was not exaggerating. I didn't fully appreciate verse number 13 until Terry and I started having kids. As a father pitieth, like a fa- as a father pitieth his children, so the Lord pitieth them that fear him. Do you remember what it was like the first time you saw your son or daughter? And the first time, the first time the doctor put that child in your hands, and after after the awe of everything, it dawns on you. This is this is a helpless creature. I've got, to, I've got to watch out for this little baby. I've got to take care of this baby. You know those, uh, those animals over there in Africa where, you know, Brother Terry served over there? Uh, like a zebra a zebra's born, man, that thing's up and running pretty quickly. That little Thompson gazelle, I think they said that the, um, the wildebeest, the, the calf of a wildebeest, walks quicker than any other mammal on the planet after birth. Well, they have to because lions, leopards, cheetahs, you know, hyenas. But your little baby and my little baby, well, when they're born, they're no different and they're no more mobile 15 hours after they're born than when they're born. They're absolutely helpless and defenseless and they are completely dependent on you, Dad, and on you, Mom. That's how God looks at us. What would you not have done for your child, that that child, when they first put that baby in your arms, what would you not have done for that child's good? That's how God looks at you. He understands our weakness, understands that without him, we can do nothing. He knows that. Earthly fathers, however imperfect they may be, point us to our heavenly father. Earthly fathers should demonstrate to their kids the existence of a heavenly father who loves them despite their weakness. Because God loves me despite my weakness. As a father pitieth his children. That's how God looks at me. And you know that word pitieth? It's a verb. It's present tense. It means he still looks at me like that. This very minute he is that tender toward me as much as he was when I first accepted him as Savior in January 1977. He still looks at me like that. So it is with our Heavenly Father. I'll say it like this, and then we'll move on. The great physician knows our weakness and understands our fears, and when he, we cannot go on, he carries us. 
He, he knows your weakness. He knows my weakness. And yet that, that pity, that tender love, like a father toward a child, toward a baby, that tender love is still there. He's a good God. Number six, he remembers that we are dust. That's not meant to be humbling. That's meant to be comforting because you'll come to a point, I'll come to a point eventually where I know that I'm dust. Now, sometimes we carry ourselves in pride or whatever, but eventually we'll come to a place in our life where we remember, what? there's just no way I can go on. There's no way I can continue this. There's no way I can accomplish this. We'll remember we're dust, but it's comforting to know that God remembers that we're dust. Look at number 14, verse 14. For he knoweth our frame. He remembereth that we are dust. As for man, his days are as grass, as a flower of the field, so he flourisheth. For the wind passeth over it, and it is gone, and the place thereof shall know it no more, the Bible says. He remembers our frame. In the New Testament, our bodies, do you remember Paul calling our our bodies earthen vessels? They're clay pots. We're made of dust. Clay has as one of its bases the dust dirt. One of the components is dust and we are clay pots and he's the divine potter. Jeremiah chapter 19, Romans chapter 9 all show God is the potter, I'm the clay. He remembers that. I was driving, one time I was going to, uh, I have uh, training with the police department in Morrison. I have training with, with one of the teams up there once a month. When we have that training, it's an eight-hour training, so I take Gatorade and water. Um, I don't do any instructing on that day. I'm just, there as, I'm just there as moral encouragement. And then I also PT with them. I PT with them so they'll feel good about themselves. That's pretty much why I PT with that team. I was going to uh, training one day, and I forgot. We have a cooler that I use all the time, and I forgot that cooler at home. So I bought one of those $3 styrofoam coolers from... The Dollar General store, don't ever buy a styrofoam cooler for $3 at Dollar General store if you're expecting it to hold 20 pounds of ice and probably that much in beverages as well. I drove down Morris Boulevard. I made my right-hand turn onto Hamblin, and I did not know, or I did not remember, I should say, about those railroad tracks that are right there over there by that plant, and uh, I was... I was not speeding. I was just doing the speed limit, but I, I forgot about those tracks too late. And that thing's in the back of my car, and I went over those tracks, and I didn't go airborne, but that styrofoam cooler did, and it busted, and there's ice and drinks all over the back of my car. Imagine what a 20-pound bag of ice looks like after being in a cheap styrofoam cooler for about two and a half hours. A lot more water, a lot more liquid than solid, all right? It went everywhere. I had way too much confidence in the ability of that styrofoam cooler to endure the test I was about to put it through. But God remembers that you and I are dust, and he's never going to put on you a temptation greater than what you're able to bear because he'll make a way of escape for it. He remembers that we're dust. Reverend John Gill, who lived back in the 17th century, said this, He knows what we are able to bear and what not. That if he lays his hand too heavy or strikes too hard or repeats his strokes too often, we will fall in pieces. God knows that. 
If you're thinking it's more than you can bear, it's not. God will strengthen you for it because he remembers that you're dust. He knows that we will sink if the load gets too heavy. He knows that. So he has compassion on us. He knows our our frailties. It's as if he stamped fragile handle with care on you and on me to remind himself that we are but dust. I'm thankful that when I go through a trial and when you go through a trial, God knows what you can take. I'm thankful for God because he helps the needy and he shows mercy to the undeserving. He tempers his wrath and forgives our sins. He understands our weaknesses. He remembers that we are dust. And finally, he offers hope in eternity by linking us to himself. He offers hope in eternity by linking us to himself. We left off reading at verse number 16, talking about man being dust, and he's like the grass and a flower that uh, he flourishes for a little time, but the wind passes over it, and he's gone. Notice verse number 17. But the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him, and his righteousness unto his children's children, to such as keep his covenant, and to those that remember his commandments to do them. He offers hope in eternity by linking us with himself. Verses 15 and 16, listen church, there's nothing you can do about that. There's nothing you and I can do about our frailty. We can take vitamins and we can exercise and we can try not to eat like we just ate a couple days ago. We can do those things and it may improve things for a little while, but there's nothing that you and I can do to, to do about our frailty and the, the plan that eventually you and I are going to die. It is appointed unto men once to die. We talked about that at Jim Whip's graveside service on Friday. That it's appointed for us to die. There's nothing we can do about that frailty. But it's important that you note the first word of verse number 17. It's the little conjunction, but. Because it moves us from transitory to immortal. That is a huge word. I know there's only three letters in it. It is a huge word. It draws the line between this life and the next life. Yes, we're dust. Yes, we're like the flower. Yes, we're like the grass, and it's going to pass away. The wind blows, and it passes away. But, verse 17, the mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting, and that mercy is available to you and me. He links, uh, he, he gives us the, the promise of hope and eternity by linking us to himself. Someone said, life without Christ is a hopeless end. But life with Christ is an endless hope. And the Bible says that's just not true for you. It's true for your grandchildren. That's what it says. It's good for your children's children in there. This truth doesn't change. That's the point here. May I ask you a question? What are you going to leave your family when you die? What are you leaving them? Are you leaving them a large estate? Have you been investing in a huge uh, insurance policy for 10, 20, 30, 40 years? And when you die, they're going to get a lot of money. I would say that the amount of earthly possessions you leave them will pale in comparison to a godly heritage if you'd put that a little higher up the priority list. I don't care what you leave your kids or your grandkids if you don't leave them a godly heritage. 
You can't, do, you, you can't do anything about what they do as adults, but if you have not invested in them and pointed them toward Christ when you can, no amount of money is going to make up for that in eternity. Point your family toward Christ. You and I live in a world where everything fades away. It wears out. A long time ago, my brother-in-law, Sonny, he's a, a retired mechanical engineer. He used to work for Ryobi, uh, the tool company. I don't have any money in Ryobi, so I, I don't have a vested interest in this, but I'll tell you what Sonny told me. He said that these companies, and it's not just Ryobi, he just worked for them, but it's all of them. He said they, they, they figure that the, the cordless products, the power tools that you and I use around our homes, they're good for about a year and a half worth of use. That's about what you'll get out of them. Now, it doesn't. it's not talking about the year and a half from the day you buy it a year and a half later, it's going to break down. That's not what they're talking about. Although, I've been there with that. Have you? Two days after warranty expires? What he said was, that's made to last. If you were to run it continually, it's made to run about 18 months. It's going to wear out. It's going to die. We had an air conditioner at our last house. That air conditioning unit, the guy who worked on it said, I, I kept trying to come and replace it. He said, don't replace it, Mark. He said, let's just keep that thing going. He said, they'll never make it. Was the, the house was built in 73. We had the original air condition, the, the condenser unit, the outside unit. We didn't replace it until into the 2000s. He said, we're not going to replace it. He said, if I can repair it, let's repair it. You'll never buy another one that's going to last 45 years. It's just not going to happen. Because you and I live in a world that is fading and it's wearing out. Doc mentioned the second law of thermodynamics this morning. It's true. You, you, you can't fight it. Nor can I fight it. But we can link ourselves to a God who promises eternal life and eternal hope. What is it that Psalm 103 is telling us through all this? It's telling us this. We are richer than we think. We are more blessed than we know. We are more secure than we realize. We frail mortal people are rich in the mercy and grace and forgiveness and life that we have in God. That's the truth. And we found that mercy and that hope and that grace, and that life, we found that at the cross. Billy Graham told this story about this uh, policeman that was on foot patrol in a northern England city, a town, a smaller town. He's on foot patrol at night, and he's walking through the night, and all of a sudden he hears sobbing. And he turns on his flashlight, and here sits a little boy on the steps, uh, on the steps going into a, a public building. And this boy is just sitting there, and tears are running down his cheeks, and he's sobbing. And he asks the boy, he says, what's wrong? And he says, I'm lost, and I can't find my way back home. It's after dark, and this kid's not 12 years old yet. So the policeman starts naming street after street in their little town. The little boy doesn't recognize the street names, and he doesn't recognize the shops that the, cop is, uh, that the cop is referring to, and all of those things. Nothing is helping this boy remember how to get home. And he's looking around, and, and he, the policeman just looks around. He's frustrated. No, doesn't know how to help this little boy. He doesn't know the family. And he looks around, and he sees in the center of their town they've got a little They've got a church, has a steeple at the, at the top of the steeple, like most of them. There's a cross there. And, and he points to the steeple and he said, do you live anywhere by where that steeple is? And the boy, the boy looked up and he, he told that cop, his face lit up. He said, yes. He said, if you can get me over to that cross, I can get home. That is exactly what God has done for us.
If you can get to the cross, you can get home. All of these things that God has done for us and is going to do for us, he does it by way of the cross. Are you weak? So am I. Are you needy? So am I. Do you get weary? So do I. Are you made of dust? Are you guilty? Are you frail? So am I. All of those things are true. And God says to the guilty and weak and needy and frail and dusty creation that he made, I know you better than you know yourself. And if you'll come to the cross, I can get you home. This is why I'm thankful to God, because he helps the needy. And I am needy. God shows mercy to the undeserving, and I'm undeserving. He tempers his wrath, and that's what I do deserve. He forgives our sins, and I am a sinner. He understands our weaknesses, and I am weak. He remembers that we are dust, and I am dirt. And he offers hope in eternity by linking us to himself. That's why I'm thankful for God. The psalmist starts the psalm out saying, Bless the Lord, O my soul. And all that is within me, bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. And then he starts in on the benefits that God has given you and me. And he says, this is why we are to bless the Lord. I hope today that you have made a profession, a genuine profession of faith in Jesus Christ. And you know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, that he is your Father, God is your Father, that Jesus is your Savior. That just doesn't happen by you or I hoping so. There is a definite act that takes place of confession to God, of repentance of sin, and Jesus saving us and we being born into the family of God. All of those things come into play after that. Church, there's, there's no reason for you and I as Christians to struggle and wallow in our strength when God is saying, I know you're dust, let me help. I know you're weak, here's my strength. I know you're not wise, here's my wisdom. Everything you and I need for life in this world, God has provided, and he's provided it through his son, Jesus Christ. Bless the Lord, O my soul, And forget not all his benefits. And if you'll remember his benefits, you will be thankful for the God that you serve. And it won't just be on the fourth Thursday of November every year. You'll live in gratitude. Would you stand with me with your heads bowed? Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And thank you for this great psalm. And thank you for pointing us to your, your greatness toward us. You're a good and faithful God. And all of these things written thousands of years ago in your Bible, they're still true today, every one of them. We've experienced these truths. We know about your mercy. We're so glad that you are slow to wrath, that you're a gracious, a gracious God, that you remember that we're dust, that you give us hope for eternity. All of these things, Lord, today we're grateful for. And I pray, God, that you would help us as Christians to understand the great benefits that we have in you. There may be some struggling here today. In one of these areas we've talked about, Lord, I pray that your work would be done in them. 
I pray, Father, for those that might be here and not saved, that you draw them to yourself today. Help them to find a Savior. Those who need to come join this church and begin serving here, Lord, let them do that. Whatever your will is in our hearts today, we pray that you would accomplish it. And I pray this in your name. Amen.